Citizens of the globe, welcome to Forum Borealis. Yet again, we are turning to the mystery of UFOs, which is such a pressing matter these days that we would be remiss to ignore it. And besides, as soon as that door is open, we can't leave it with a sloppy half-take, but have to examine it from many different angles, as well as speak with different kinds of experts. So, The last year has had its fair share of focusing on the phenomena, and today I bring you another take. Now, from a more, should I say, official stance, where we will explore the national security state's involvement with it, as well as so-called alien abductions. Just listen to this. July 26th at 10 a.m., the House Oversight Committee will hold a hearing on unidentified anomalous phenomena UAPs, I prefer to call them UFOs. The witnesses will be as follows. David Grush, he's a decorated former combat officer who served in Afghanistan, and he recently told the World News about his experiences serving on a UAP task force led by the U.S. Navy. Commander David Fravor, he's a former Navy commander who shot the famous Tic Tac video that you've seen. It's on YouTube. It's 60 Minutes did a special on it. He did that in 2004 during a routine training flight over the Pacific Ocean. Ryan Graves, he's a former Navy pilot. He reported multiple UAP encounters during training flights. An interesting thing about Ryan was that he warned the Pentagon that these encounters are putting our pilots at risk. He attended the hearing held by the House Intelligence Committee last year, but was not allowed to speak. If you all remember, he wasn't even allowed admittance. He had to have someone gave him press credentials to get in, which I thought really stunk. Um, Last year, the House Intelligence Committee held a hearing on UAPs. They brought in some Pentagon bureaucrats who only had two answers to the questions they were asked. I don't know, or that's classified. This hearing is going to be different. As we convene here, UAP are in our airspace, but they are grossly underreported. These sightings are not rare or isolated. They are routine. Military aircrew and commercial pilots, trained observers whose lives depend on accurate identification, are frequently witnessing these phenomena. We're now reasonably confident that these triangles correlate to unmanned aerial systems in the area. The triangular appearance is a result of light passing through the night vision goggles and then being recorded by an SLR camera. There have been no collisions between any U.S. assets and one of these UAPs, correct? We have not had a collision. We've had at least 11 near misses. Now, is it true that you saw, in your words, a 40-foot flying tic-tac-shaped object? That's correct. Or for some people that can't know what a tic-tac is, it's a giant flying propane tank. Fair enough. Did this object come up on radar or interfere with your radar or the USS Princeton? The Princeton tracked it, the Nimitz tracked it, the E-2 tracked it. We never saw it on our radars. Our fire control radars never picked it up. The other airplane that took the video did get it on a radar. As soon as it tried to lock it, it jammed the radar, spit the lock, and he, he rapidly switched over to the targeting pod, which you can do in the, uh, in the F-18. From what you saw that day and what you've seen on video, did you see any source of propulsion from the flying object, including on any potential thermal scans from your aircraft? No, there's none. There's no uh, IR plume coming out. uh, And Chad, who took the video, went through all the EO, which is black and white TV, and the IR modes, and there's no visual signs of propulsion. It's just sitting in space at 20,000 feet. In, In your career, have you ever seen a propulsion system that creates no thermal exhaust? No. 
Can you describe how the aircraft maneuvered? Uh, abruptly, very determinate. It knew exactly what it was doing. It was aware of our presence, and it had acceleration rates. I mean, it went from zero to matching our speed in no time at all. Now, if the fastest plane on Earth was trying to do these maneuvers that you saw, would it be capable of doing that? No, not even close. And just to confirm, this object had no wings, correct? No wings. Now, was the aircraft that you were flying, was it armed? No, it never felt threatened at all. If the aircraft was armed, do you believe that your aircraft or any aircraft in possession of the United States could have shot the Tic Tac down? I'd say no. Just on the performance, it would just left in a, in a split second. It looks like we have a problem here that needs further investigation. <laughs> yes. The objects that are being seen by commercial pilots are uh, performing maneuvers that are unexplainable due to our current understanding of our technology and our capabilities as a country. And that applies for the military as well. Mr. Ferrer? Yeah, I concur with that. We have nothing that can stop in midair and go the other direction, nor do we have anything that can, like in our situation, come down from space, hang out for three hours, and go back up. Thank you. My last question, and, so, and sometimes you, I know that you have also said some of these answers in the past, but we're trying to get them on the public record as well, which is really important. Mr. Gresh, finally, do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Absolutely, based on interviewing uh, over 40 witnesses over four years. And, and, and where? I know the exact locations, and, and those locations were provided to the Inspector General. Do you believe our government has made contact with intelligent extraterrestrials? Something I can't discuss in public setting. Okay, I can't ask when you think this occurred. <laughs> um, if you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. So do you have any personal knowledge of people who have been harmed or injured in efforts to cover up or conceal these extraterrestrial technology? Yes, personally. Have, you heard, have anyone been murdered that you, would that you know of or have heard of, I guess? I have to be careful asking that question. I directed people with that knowledge to the appropriate authorities. I'm going to be sending a letter. Uh, I'm going to be working with the uh, members of the Oversight Committee to get Mr. Grush into a skiff. You heard a lot of his answers today that are classified information that he provided to the Inspector General. We want to see that. Uh, and so I think that's the next step here is to get that information in, in, in a secure facility. You thought there was going to be about half a dozen witnesses, so six witnesses. We ended up seeing the three yeah. witnesses. Was there a plan to have more? Absolutely. And um, uh, we had one tell us that, that he'd received a call from, I guess, uh, maybe the, the Pentagon and and he or she decided that maybe it wasn't best that they were on there. We had somebody who was an affiliation with NASA and NASA will say, well, they didn't work for NASA. This is not this is news to us. But it was one of their quasi something. I don't know. But anyway, and they backed out at the end. And then we had we had one more, I think, that backed out. And, you know, we, we just had so many roadblocks from even the press conference. You know, we were going to do a press conference to talk about this myself and um, and three others. And a reporter, actually, one of your colleagues, put his microphone down. And uh, I was leaving the um, uh, Republican conference and said, hey, are y'all having, having this press conference, right? And I said, yeah, it's tomorrow, I think, or whenever. And he said, uh, well, you know, they put you in a room that's under construction and that is it is tiny. I said, this is a he said, this is a big deal. You need to be in the main room. And I was like, what the heck's going on? We'd like for Speaker McCarthy and well, Chairman Comer actually to appoint a select committee just to do just that. So we would have subpoena powers and we could bring those people in.
I think the thing is, if they don't have anything to hide, if the Pentagon doesn't, then they shouldn't throw up another roadblock as they've done in the past on some of this other stuff. So um, polling shows that over more than half the population believes that there's something else out there. And, and it's really touched a nerve. We've already seen some good evidence of alien technology. There is radar data and excellent witness data that indicates there are objects that move through our atmosphere with over 100 G-forces of strength. For example, you and I are experiencing one G-force as we sit here in our chairs. 100 G-forces is 100 times the force of gravity. At three to four G-forces, you will begin to pass out. At 15 to 20 G-forces, a aircraft, the structural integrity just comes apart. So to have craft that are moving through the atmosphere, accelerating and decelerating with that level of force is indicative of control by some intelligence that's well beyond us. My amendment will require the National Archive and Records Administration to create a collection of records from across government agencies that can be declassified for the public's use, similar to the approach used in 1992 with the JFK Assassination Records Collection Act. These records will carry a presumption of immediate disclosure, which means they can only remain classified with good reason. And knowing David Grush is under oath and his credentials, he said, I'll show you where they are. I know where they are. Like, how are you not gonna call his bluff on that? This is coming out. How do I know this? I've also went to Washington for almost five weeks, just a couple months ago, and I met with a lot of the people that are working behind the scenes to get this out. They know that it's real, okay? It's just now it's a matter of how do we roll this out? How, and there is a lot of talking behind the scenes. I can assure you this is coming out and you just wait when some high resolution satellite imagery leaks out, that will be happening. First-hand witnesses are gonna come forward. That will be happening. They can't put the genie back in the bottle, man. This is this is coming out. Is it a real concern? Is it a real legitimate issue as you see it? Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't stood up an organization at the Pentagon to analyze and and try to collect and, and coordinate the way these sightings are reported if we didn't take it seriously. Of course we do. I mean, some of these phenomena we know have already had uh, an impact on our training ranges for when pilots are out trying to do training in the air and they see these things, they're not sure what they are, and it can have an impact on their ability to perfect their skills. So it already had uh, an impact here, um, and we just want to better understand it. Now, we're not saying what they are or what they're not. We're saying that there's something our pilots are seeing. We're saying it has had an effect on some of our training operations, and so we want to get to the bottom of it. We want to understand it better. So, yes. Uh, David Rush, who sat on a U.S. Air Force panel on UAPs, he says that he was informed of a UAP crash retrieval and reverse en engineering program based on interviewing 40 witnesses over four years. Does such a program exist, and do you believe that the American people deserve to know if it does? I have no information on that uh, to provide for you today, one way or the other. I would just say what I said la last week when I got asked about this. Uh, we obviously take the issue of uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon seriously. There's a whole office at the Pentagon that has stood up to analyze the data, collect reports, collate those reports, and forward them up appropriately. And that's, I think, testament to the fact that, uh, that we know that uh, in some cases, uh, these phenomena have impacted military training, have then impacted military readiness. If the president didn't believe that the sightings by pilots were serious enough to be considered, he wouldn't have wanted the Pentagon to stand up an office to, to look at this, to analyze the data, to collect reports, to provide a system by which 
uh, we can collate the information and better figure out what we've got here. But that works ongoing. So if your question is, do we think we need to be transparent with the American people? Of course, we, we, we need to be as transparent as we can be. Top takeaway from the study is that there is a lot more to learn. We don't know what these UAP are. That's why I'm announcing that NASA has appointed a NASA director of UAP research. They are being tasked with developing and overseeing the implementation of NASA's vision for UAP research. We will use NASA's expertise to work with other agencies to analyze UAP. We will use AI and machine learning to search the skies for anomalies as we have been searching the heavens and will continue to search the heavens for habitability. And NASA will do this transparently. So people have come forward to me and, and told me about their firsthand experiences with these exploitation programs. I have pushed people to the Senate Intelligence Committee, so they need to continue hearing, doing and actuating the legislation that they have put in place to cut off the funding. That's the carrot and the stick situation. Cut off the funding for illegal UAP reverse engineering programs, but turn it back on for acknowledged ones. Has anyone from Congress reached out to you? I mean, you're making some- I, I can't you, say. You can't say, but you won't sure. deny. No, I'm not denying that. I think people, it's been well established that uh, I've been trying to assist this uh, process. And so if a congressional process needs to go forward, when and and how is that likely, the next step? Yeah, what, what are well, we talking? the writing's on the wall. I mean, we're going to have public, open congressional hearings that, that absolutely talk about this with people with direct knowledge. And I think that's really important to earn back the trust of the American public because this has been corrosive. The over-classification and secrecy about UFOs and what they represent to humanity, that has been corrosive to public trust. They want to make an example of David Grush. When I say they, I mean the people that do not and are not for transparency and disclosure, friends of mine that are not for it from the legacy ufo programs like the long durational ones they say i'm with you as a friend but no do not kick a sleeping dog this doesn't get out i go why tell me why give me one reason why what's so scary that you have to be daddy and keep this from the american public not once has somebody answered me appropriately clearly with facts that allowed me to get behind that not once and it makes me think this is all about power and control of small groups that don't want to give it up. And the closer we get to the goodies, the more pushback we're going to get. He was saying, I can't tell you here because this is a public hearing. And if I do, they will literally snatch me up, put me in jail, make an example out of me and scare everybody else that wants to come forward. And the cover up continues. But does that seem to be where we're going here? They're going to try to push for this idea of a fake alien invasion as some sort of a cover for disclosure. Well, that seems to be where they're heading, because the UAPs that have been cited and discussed in Congress and in uh, reports are always done in the context of them being some unknown national security threat. And Milley is on board with that. He's saying, yes, the UAPs are real. They're a national security threat. We need to put attention on that. But he just says what Grush had to say about them in some way being related to these uh, retrieved uh, non-human craft and that people are being injured or have been killed for revealing the truth, that is something that Millie has pushed back against. So, you know, we do see clearly that there are people within the Pentagon going all the way up to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs that want the public to think that UAPs are a threat, but that's it. We're definitely not alone. Absolutely, the data points empirically that we're not alone, yeah. Do we have bodies? Do we have species of Well, naturally, when you recover something that's either landed or crashed, sometimes you encounter um, dead pilots. And uh, believe it or not, as fantastical as that sounds, it's true. 
Now, that was a mashup of some of the hysteria that has gone on in the last year. And uh, what you heard was different kinds of interviews, uh, press conferences, official statements, and of course, uh, directly from the, the hearings. Instrumental in bringing this focus forward are a coalescence of things that has happened in the years leading up to it. One of them was the To The Stars initiative. It broke with the interview of Tom DeLonge at Joe Rogan's show, which of course was very ridiculed at the time. And uh, after that, he brought on serious people in the core team. It's an old story now, and I've covered it earlier in my show with Peter Lavenda. But another instrumental person, even more so in bringing the subject into the public limelight and to whitewash the matter. And that ultimately led to all the official inquiries going on these days. Would be our guest tonight, none other than Ralph Blumenthal, the award-winning reporter and old-school investigative journalist who's been working as staff reporter for the New York Times between 64 and 09, where he has led an extensive and illustrious career with numerous achievements. He graduated from the City College of New York, where he started his career as editor for its newspaper, The Campus, and was also a Columbia University alumni, graduating from its School of Journalism. He began his career as reporter and columnist for the Grand Prairie Daily News, Texan, in 63. In 64, he joined the New York Times for what would be its heyday as a news clerk, and within months was promoted to the Metro staff. In 68, he was assigned as a foreign correspondent to the German Bureau, where he covered the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, the rise of neo-Nazis, and the West German economic miracle. In 69, the Times sent him to Vietnam to cover the war, including its spread to Cambodia. And assigned back to New York in 71, he became an investigative reporter specializing in stories about foreign and U.S. corruption and organized crime. His series on Nazi war criminals hiding in America helped pass the Holtzman Amendment Bill in Congress to bar persecutors from entering the country. He was the first to sniff out the U.N. Secretary General Kurt Waldheim's secret Nazi past. During his career, he's broken so many historic and consequential cases that there's no room to mention them all, so we'll settle for a few highlights. Like exposing the Tawana Brawley racial hoax series in 87, which was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, back when that award meant something. Or like his coverage of the World Trade Center truck bombing, which won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news. Or like his series on the fatal crashes of US Air in 88, prompting new safety procedures, which was nominated for a Pulitzer, and became finalist for Harvard University's Goldsmith Prize, and won the Worth Bingham Prize for investigative reporting, presented by the President at the White House. Or like when in 94 he joined the cultural news department as an arts reporter and won the Times Publishers Award, which is but one of some two dozen Times Awards he's won over the years, in this case for a series on the Sotheby's and Christie's antitrust scandal. 
After 9-11, he briefly rejoined the investigative team covering terrorism and among other reported on death penalty cases and George W. Bush's military record. In 08, he returned to the Mitra staff and wrote news features and blogged on city issues until he retired as a staffer in 09. However, he did not rest on his laurels, but changed gears and now took on a subject that he finally could afford a potential backlash of, namely the covert connections between UFOs and the deep state. In 17, together with, among others, Leslie Keane, they started a series of articles on the matter and broke the news on the secret Pentagon unit investigating UFOs. This created shockwaves in the worldwide mainstream media that once and for all destroyed the former media blackout and ridicule of the subject, and which directly led to the current congressional hearings and ongoing revelations, as well as the modern official UAP investigations. Among the revelations was that that the DoD had spent millions on a secret program titled the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program that investigated UFOs. In 23, Blumenthal reported that former Air Officer David Grush claimed that the U.S. has a secret UFO retrieval program with multiple vehicles of non-human origin as well as records of dead pilots in its possession. We will address some of this in the show today. Now, among the recognitions of Blumenthal's work, I will mention, you know, one, he earned a Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism Alumni Award. In 10, he was named a distinguished lecturer at Baroque College, where he has been teaching journalism and currently oversees historic collections in the Newman Library archives. Also in 10, he was inducted into the NY City College Communications Alumni Hall of Fame. And in 12, he was named a Towns and Harry medalist of the City College Alumni Association. Ralph has also been a prolific author who has written seven books just on organized crime and cultural history. After his first book was published in 88 called Last Days of the Sicilians, which treated the FBI's pizza connection drug case, he was invited to the annual retreat of the judges of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit to speak on electronic eavesdropping. In one, he was named a fellow of, of the Guggenheim Memorial Foundation to research the progressive career and penal reforms of warden Louis Laws, the man who made Sing Sing Sing. <laughs> The book on Warden Laws called Miracle at Sing Sing, How One Man Transformed the Lives of America's Most Dangerous Prisoners, was published in 04 and supported by a Guggenheim grant. And his latest book, published in this year of 23, is called UFOs, Mysteries in the Sky, and is co-authored with his wife, the nutritionist, journalist and author of children's books and young adult fiction. Deborah Blumenthal. However, what concerns us today is his 21 book called The Believer, Alien Encounter, Hard Science and the Passion of John Mack. The Believer is the weird and chilling true story of Dr. John Mack, the eminent Harvard psychiatrist and Pulitzer Prize winning biographer who risked his career to investigate the phenomena of human alien encounters and to give credibility to their stupefying tales of otherworldly accounts of a cross-section of humanity, including young children, who report being taken against their wills by alien beings. Based on exclusive access to Max archives, journals and psychiatric notes, 
as well as interviews with his family and closest associates. In the words of Dan Aykroyd, as a person sane enough to hold a driver's license, I say, what are we to make of Mac's findings? Read his gripping, factual account of a mental health pioneer and truth seeker by a soundly accredited, successful author, veteran New York Times foreign correspondent and reporter. Decide for yourselves and then tell me. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Ralph. Thank you, Al. Pleasure. Pleasure to have you. Pleasure to have you. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. It looks like you're in a classroom. I am. I'm actually in a uh, in the archives office at uh, the college where I uh, work in the archives, Baruch College. So uh, right, right, right. And you you are in Scandinavia. I'm in Norway. All right, here we are. Very good. So you are, as people just heard, not known from the topic we're going to... Well, you're becoming known for that also, but you, you you did your main work in the mainstream field back in the day when there was such a thing as investigative journalists in the mainstream. Ah. And uh, yeah. then you moved on to this weird area that we're going to take on today. Uh, and we, what we have done uh, when it comes to UFOs, we've had uh, some stuff about the classified space program. Yes. We've had some stuff about, you know, the phenomenon in itself. Right. Uh, we had Peter Lavender on uh, for his part in the To The Stars Academy. We've yes. had um, also about the, I should say, the lesser known aspects of the UFO, like the psychological or spiritual, if you like, the esoteric aspects of them. Right. We've had a lot about that. Right. So then you know where we're coming from. Yeah. Um, right. So your book about John Mack, I thought we could go through, give a short teaser of that. I mean, it's limited how much you can do in a podcast, right? But... Sure. Review that. And also, I've gone through some of your articles. I think it's um, important that we discuss the UAP phenomenon, not just the abductee phenomenon. Sure. And how you got into that. I understand you were a part of those who broke the story. I was. Yeah. So I think we should uh, focus on that. And uh, I'm like open-minded. I have not made any show this will be the first show about quote unquote aliens because i'm not big on that personally but right. beyond that there's a million shows i don't know i can't contribute to it but if i had had mac on or when that can't happen i have you on i think it's safe to take it on oh sure because uh, people will uh, give it just because of unfortunately people need uh, what you say in english qualifications like uh, some kind of um, yeah. when they know you're a serious journalist, then they will listen if you see what I mean. Uh -huh. So yeah. good. No, I'm happy to discuss that. Yeah. So uh, any way you want to take it, uh, I'm I'm open to it. Okay. And as we just established, uh, I'm in Norway, and I don't know if you know this. Tell me if you know, but Norway is kind of exceptional in the UFO field, in the UFO study field. We have had a public, white, open mainstream scientific investigation ah. uh, of ufos or uaps i should say since the 80s oh completely mainstream completely in the white everything is open and nobody knows about it it's called hasdal have you heard about it i have not but um i had the good fortune of uh, visiting norway uh, some years ago actually in the 70s 
um, <laughs> before I was involved in the UFO field at all. Uh, so I did not really know. And it's kind of news to me that you're in the forefront of that because we need more uh, transparency. Right. Uh, so that is really very interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, in the 70s, we were innocent babes in the woods. Ah. So we've completely transformed since then. Mainly the oil has has yes. been the engine of that, right? But uh, it, it wouldn't matter if you were interested in UFOs in the 70s because nobody... What happened was that there was this huge flap that started in the 80s in this remote godforsaken valley Okay, that was so pressing that even the press descended and the press back then were much less tolerant to these things but what happened <laughs> the mainstream journalists came there to mock it and then all of them experienced it themselves it was like thousands ah. so after that it got taken seriously and one pioneer his name is dr alan strong He's been cooperating with scientists all over the world, so maybe this should be your new next uh, project to look this into. Very interesting, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, as you know, Al, I mean, this is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not yeah. limited to the U.S. Uh, it's it's everywhere. And uh, and John Mack, uh, the uh, Harvard psychiatrist I write about, which we'll discuss, uh, actually went all over the world chasing these reports. He was in Africa. He was in Australia. And, so uh, it is it is a worldwide phenomenon, and um, that's just more confirmation of that. Yeah. Uh, Mac was also one of those who, who seized that Zimbabwe thing, which is quite extraordinary and has got a renaissance now. I just want to add for the Hastal phenomenon, what's so special about it is that you have all the UFOs, uh, UFO uh, phenomenons crammed into one spot they think it's some kind of portal hmm. so you have uh, you have the lights you have the metallic things you have everything all the colors you know they are invisible you can pick them up in infrared or in ultraviolet they are visible long story short actually i'm going to send you a podcast i did about it you can review it and if you find interest in it you can pursue it there's been a lot i don't think mac was there but what's what's no. this grand old man of ufos called this nuclear scientist uh, of the 60s and 70s um not alan heineck um, yeah heineck was there heineck, he said yeah. it was the most important site in the world for this was, and nobody knows about this well I, it, it is fascinating i mean the whole idea of portals has has come up as you know the skinwalker ranch in uh, yeah. utah yeah uh, in the united states um, also was the uh, setting of uh, some very strange things. And uh, it was you know, thought to be perhaps a portal through, through which these um, strange phenomena manifest. So um, I'm, I'm interested to hear that uh, Norway also experienced that. Yeah. And uh, the university connected to this study, you know, their view, and even the defense, uh, the military is supporting it. Their, their view is that we can, they think it's like an unknown energy source that we can harvest and use because huh. Norway is very into finding alternative energy to oil. Right. So that's kind of, well, they, they, but the researchers, fortunately, are more, should I say, uh, neutral. They are also open to the more uh, new agey aspects of it, you know, like extraterrestrials or, or spiritual dimension. Well, they are finding out, you know, they're making new finds about perpetual energy uh, that was yeah. ridiculed for a long time. 
But just recently, there was an experiment that showed um, energy was actually uh, manufactured uh, greater than the amount of power needed to produce it. So that holds out uh, a lot of hope for um, uh, new sources of energy because these these UFOs, whatever they are, they seem to operate with an energy source that we don't recognize. Oh, no doubt about it. Certainly not oil. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's not rocket science. This and uh, right. <laughs> they're not they're not passing the speed of light. It's obviously portals or, or wormholes or whatever you want to call it. Uh, is this the same experiment I just heard about? They had a succession of uh, a success of cold fusion. That's it, cold fusion. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that was actually also successful in the forties and fifties. First Italians, and then. Um, in Argentina, but in Argentina it went black because they used Nazi scientists. Ah. You know, Peron was was their host. Ah. So it's an old technology, but I'm glad it's seeing the light of day finally. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's really one of the more hopeful areas of research for our society because if we can ever transcend the fossil fuels, um, the planet will certainly be. A lot better off, and there are limitless possibilities opening up uh, in terms of you know uh, reviving the economies of uh, countries all over the world, and uh, uh, it's sort of unimaginable what this how this would change history. Yeah, indeed, absolutely. And free energy and anti gravity technology has been one of the subcategories of of the UAP field forever. Just like abductees that we're going to discuss today, or maybe we should call them experiencers. Right. And also, uh, but I, I think we should start with the phenomenon itself before we go to John Mack and all that, um, because you are crucial in whitewashing this thing. And I I want to say as an introduction to this uh, part of the talk. Even here in Norway, now the media can write about it and it's not the obligatory snickering to follow or the, right. you know, the eye winking, etc. And that's all to do with that somehow. And I think it was a project started by Harry Reid and Tom DeLong and uh, this coast-to-coast journalist. What's his name again? Um, what? Uh, what um... No, not Art Bell. Um, he's in Las Vegas. Oh, uh, uh, George. Uh, um, uh, he's not even a journalist. Yeah, yeah, George something, but jo- not George Norrie, the other George. Jo- um, uh, yeah, I'm just blanking on his name. Yeah, he's, he's uh, me too. a real player here. Yeah, but uh, a real journalist too. And so there was something they were doing. I remember Tom DeLong was announcing it before it came, and then eventually it came, and they made it to the stars, and then... I think your old uh, newspaper was the first to pick up on it, either that or Washington Post. No, no, it was definitely the Times. We we're very proud of that. We, we loved it. It was the Times. So can you can you just, uh, from your angle, explain what happened there, how this came about? Okay. Um, so I had already been working on the John Mack book separately since 2004, and I'll tell you that story later. But in, in 2017... Uh, a colleague of mine named Leslie Kane, who's probably the preeminent uh, journalist writing about uh, UFOs, um, uh, went to a meeting in Washington, D.C., uh, with a, a number of intelligent, very high-level intelligence people, and she found out that the government, the American government, the Pentagon, had a secret unit 
investigating UFOs, which nobody knew about because officially the American government was out of the UFO business with Project Blue Book at the end of 1969. Yeah. Uh, they dismissed the whole phenomenon as, as, you know, there were a lot of 700 unresolved cases, but they still dismissed it anyway. So suddenly Leslie finds out that there's a unit called ATIP um, in, in the Pentagon that's investigating UFOs. And um, the director, Lou Elizondo, was quitting because he wasn't getting enough support uh, inside the Pentagon. So we ran that story. Um, we broke the story. We had uh, videos of some of the encounters that the Pentagon had captured, little snippets of uh, actual uh, footage, um, video footage that we put on, our, on the Times website. So, um, and that was a sensation. We reported that, uh, you know, Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader, had obtained $22 million in, in black money, un, unreported funds uh, uh, for this UFO investigative agency in the Pentagon. And um, that really broke the things wide open. And people tell us afterwards that uh, uh, this helped to establish the, the field within mainstream reporting, because, as you said, there was a lot of snickering about it. And um, it was a career ender for many scientists and government people who... who Just the word itself would make it censor. Uh, yeah. They would censor you. Right. I mean, people who dare to uh, inquire, even you know, with the best of intentions, what is going on, um, were, were laughed out of the out of the room. So and and newspapers too didn't dare to uh, for the most part exceptions yeah but um, so that's that's what it made it safe really to talk about the subject. Mm. But uh, is there something you're not telling us? Because when you approached uh, the gatekeepers at your paper, what why would they suddenly want you to publish something like this? Um, yeah, when Leslie came back from Washington and told me the story. Uh, I was a contributing uh, writer for the Times. I had left the staff a few years before, retired. My, my regular career was over, but I still had contacts in the paper, and I still did uh, freelance articles for them. So I contacted the, the executive editor, the top guy, and I said, we have a sensational story about a secret government agency that um, is actually investigating UFOs, even though the government officially was out of the UFO business for, business for 50 years. And um, it's it's a great story, and um, it's all on the record. We had no anonymous sources. Uh, we checked out Lou Elizondo very carefully. We saw his service record. Um, it was all, uh, you know, absolutely confirmed on the record. And uh, at times, an editor and the people he put us in touch with from the Washington Bureau uh, were good journalists, and they realized we had the story. There was no... Um, there was just no doubts about the fact that this agency existed, that it had been secret. And uh, we teamed up with a, a um, reporter from the Washington Bureau who covered the Pentagon. So that gave us sources in the Pentagon to check out the story. And she actually contributed, uh, Helene Cooper contributed a lot of very good reporting. So the three of us put this story together. But the editors were on board from pretty much from the beginning even though they wanted to make sure we had all the facts straight and, you know, the, with the times it's always checking and double checking and questions, yeah. but um, it was not a difficult story to sell them. Okay. It's kind of surprising to me because um, although the times like many other, like Guardian and many other 
papers uh, who has built up a certain um, uh, reputation, should we say, for, from the old days. Right. They've all been um, co-opted now by, um, you know, the modern uh, zeitgeists, to put it uh, kindly. And it doesn't anymore seem that they're so concerned about, you know, sources. I mean, you have, for example, the whole Russiagate phenomenon, just to take one example. So right. I'm, I'm, I'm positively impressed then that it was this easy for you. I, I suppose it, because it was you too, they couldn't just reject it out of the door. I mean, you you probably have some pull there. Well, I mean, I had spent uh, 45 years on the staff of the New York Times. I'd written a lot of investigative stories. I was covering uh, law enforcement and the FBI and uh, Nazi war criminals and uh, corruption in government. So I had a, a you know track record of being a uh, uh, so a hard-nosed <laughs> investigative reporter. And Down to was, earth, right? Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was not a fiction writer. Mm. So uh, that, that certainly helped. Um, and look, I don't want to say it was easy selling the story because it's never easy, never easy at the New York Times. There's always um, editors raising last-minute questions. There's a general skeptical attitude about any story you present, certainly UFOs. <laughs> so it didn't sail into the paper by any means. But um, but but the editor saw it was a solid story and uh, it got in without. I, I've had more trouble with other stories. Let's put it that right, way. Right, right. <laughs> well, I suppose also it helps that actually it's it, 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 the story was about the government more than it was about UFOs in itself, right? So absolutely right. You don't have to imply too much by absolutely by yeah. right. And, but, and these were observations, by the way, made by trained Navy pilots who are the most trained observers you can get, you know, yeah. in the world. Um, so these were not anecdotal reports of ordinary people who might be mistaken or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. These were um, people we spent millions and millions of dollars training with the most sophisticated weaponry we have, uh, these um, fighter jets. So they come with a kind of credibility and the equipment that was on these jets and on the Navy ships, uh, the radar and other detection devices um, is, you know, the highest technological level. Yeah. So it, it was very hard to dismiss that. Yeah. Uh, I suppose uh, looking through your articles in uh, New York Times, is it right that your first article about this subject field is the one from January 1519 called Project Blue Book is based on a true UFO story? No, no. Started. So when did you start writing about it in the mainstream? No, the first article was uh, December 16th, 2017. Uh, Leslie had gone down to Washington in October of 2017, found out about the secret program. Harry Reid had gotten uh, $22 million from the government to uh, you know, fund this uh, UFO effort, the secret effort. Um, and that's what we found out about. So that was uh, um, that article appeared December 2017. Other articles followed, including, uh, you know, we did something about this TV show on Project Blue Book, but we also did articles, follow-up articles on pilots and what they saw close near misses, actually, with some of these UFOs, which added another level of, of um, credibility to the story, because here were the pilots talking about their own experiences um, and then we did the most difficult story of all. We did a story about um, briefings to Congress 
about potential or possible uh, recoveries of UFO debris and crashed craft. Mm. Um, and that was a very carefully constructed story that was more difficult to get into the New York Times because it was more controversial. Yeah. But we reported that Congress had been actually briefed on some of these incidents, and um, uh, we couldn't go too far beyond that because we a lot of the information remains classified. Yeah. But it added a level of credibility to these stories that the government is actually in possession of material from these craft. Yeah, Dr. Pasolka says something similar in her book, The American Cosmic. Um, yes, um, so, Diane, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, she she uh, she's very highly regarded. She comes at it as a religion scholar, uh, Diane Pasolka, and um, uh, she also um, talks about recovering material that's, that's very mysterious and is being studied. I can't find that article from 16. I, I, I see October 30th is an interesting one. Conasa adds to evidence of mysterious ancient earthworks. And then the first one seems to pop up after that is April 24, 17, called People Are Seeing UFOs Everywhere. And this book proves it. Yeah, I, I did that story. Again, that, that followed the first article. That was a story about two researchers who have been tracking these reports and um, they, again, they go about it in a very uh, methodical way of just tracking where the reports, the sightings uh, are coming in, what time of day, uh, where exactly, what counties across the country, um, and uh, what shapes these objects are. They fall into several, uh, you know, notably recognizable shapes, either, you know, saucer shaped or triangular shaped or cigar shaped. But so they just did a census of, of these reports. So I wrote that up in the Times. Uh, I see the article now, uh, you, the one you did with Cooper and Keene. Yes. Um, it's bumped up to December 1617. Mm -hmm. Probably updates or something that made it. Yes. Cool. Yeah. So that's that. People can see uh, if they have access, they can can see it here online. Although you have, a, you have some free articles, for example, in Vanity Fair. You have one called Extraterrestrials, question mark, which is basically about uh, Dr. Mack, which we're going to talk more about. Yes. Wonderful article. It's like a, probably a preview of your book or a teaser for your book. Exactly. It was a work in progress. I, I've been working on my book since 2004. Um, the whole story began for me then. But in um, 2011, I believe, the Vanity, I, I wrote it up for Vanity Fair as a work in progress. And uh, I sort of talked about John Mack and the work he was doing. So, um, um, that, and, uh, you know, that got a lot of attention, that article. Okay, so before we discuss UAPs then, I want to hear you, your awakening. How, how come a mainstream um, journalist like yourself, uh, in four, you said, uh, opened yourself up to this censored and popoed field? Okay, so um, as a young man, I was always interested in science fiction. It was very popular after the war, stories by Isaac Asimov and uh, Arthur C. Clarke, and it, it remains a very a big field, as you know, science fiction. Yeah. Um, and I, I read a lot of that. And then I drifted away and I got into mainstream journalism. And um, uh, I was working for The Times and I was in Texas. I was the Southwest Bureau chief and correspondent for Texas and Oklahoma and New Mexico. 
And I happened to go into a used bookstore and pick up a copy of a book um, that I, I didn't know anything about called Passport to the Cosmos by a guy named John Mack. Um, and uh, I read the book. It was by a Harvard psychiatrist. Uh, talking about people he uh, treated or, or counseled um, who had these stories of encountering uh, aliens and seeing UFOs. Um, and uh, I thought, it, and it was very well researched, the book. He, he talked about, um, uh, you know, these people's stories and why he, he thought they were, um, these people were credible. They were not crazy. They were not hallucinating. And again, I, I was really taken by the fact that this guy was a renowned psychiatrist at Harvard. He had done a lot of different things. He had won a Pulitzer Prize uh, with a biography of Lawrence of Arabia. Um, he had, uh, you know, wonderful credentials. And yet here he was writing about people who told of alien encounters. Mm. Um, and he took them seriously. Mm. So that's what got me started. I thought, well, that's an interesting thing. I, I should reach out to this guy. He could make a good story for the Times. Now, he was already very famous. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. Mm. Uh, but he had been uh, written up in the Times. This was his second book. He had written an earlier book. Um, he had been actually uh, put under investigation at Harvard for, for, for what he had you know, written about alien encounters. So Harvard was not happy with him. There was a whole backstory, which I didn't realize. But I thought I would call him up and maybe set up an interview. And uh, very few days later, I picked up the paper and found out that he'd been killed in London. He'd been run over by a drunk driver. Oh, wow. So you never got to meet him then? I never got to meet him. Oh. And, um, you know, there were a lot of conspiracy theories that maybe he was assassinated or so. And I yeah. later on, I checked those out. And it's not true. He was he really was just run down. It was an accident. But what happened is after I, I read the book and after I found out he'd been killed, I contacted his family and said I would still like to learn more about him and maybe uh, do an article or a book. And um, after a lot of back and forth, they gave me access to his archives. He was a wonderful saver mm. and he had uh, tremendous amounts of information that he'd compiled, unwritten, un un unpublished articles, his, his own journals, his uh, accounts of um, his own investigations, his therapy sessions with his own therapist, how he talked about these things. Wow. So I got access to all that. And that's what became the, the beginnings of the book in, in, in 2004, after I found out he'd been killed. Um, and it took me 17 years <laughs> to put that story together, um, you know, on and off, uh, interviewing a lot of people and his family and going through the archives. But that's, that's what became the book. Yeah, you know what, since we are at him, let's start with him then and, and do the UAP phenomenon in itself after. Okay. <laughs> because uh, I remember listening to him, he was interviewed in Coast to Coast. And by the way, the journalist over at Coast to Coast, uh, I recall his name now, is George Knapp. George Knapp, yes, yeah. absolutely. Kudos to him. So, and one of the things, one of the reasons there was so much speculation if he, if they had finished off John Mack was that very shortly before this, he had done some very controversial and would-be paradigm-altering facts, if, if generally known, about these 
fragments of metal that some of these so-called abductees or experiences have had in their bodies that he he saved and and vetted. Right. And maybe you can talk about this. Are you familiar with this part of his work? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, one of the things that uh, scientists always say, and they're absolutely right, is show us the the evidence. If these encounters have taken place and Aliens have implanted objects, tracking devices in human beings. Let's see them. Mm. So it's a, it's a completely legitimate claim or demand. The problem is this phenomenon is so strange uh, that it doesn't lend itself for some reason to that kind of uh, investigation. Uh, people who have felt uh, that they had objects implanted in their bodies to track them and they had all kinds of detailed accounts of remembering you know, how this happened, with how, how the aliens did this or so, uh, when they look for these objects or these implants or so, they, they didn't come up with anything. Uh, now, it's a little more complicated than that. There are some strange objects that haven't been fully identified, but by and large, there is no hard and fast proof that these, these implants existed. And, uh, and John Mack, uh, who heard these accounts from people he he counseled as a psychiatrist uh, was also eager to put his hands on these things and he never could um, there was always a reason why the object couldn't be found or there was another explanation for it it was something natural that grew in the body so um, that so John Mack realized pretty quickly that the normal uh, requirements of scientific proof uh, somehow didn't come into play I mean, it, it couldn't be proven that easily uh, from from scientific recoveries. Um, and that's one of the hallmarks of this very strange phenomenon. If it was easy, we would have figured it out long ago. Mm, mm, mm. Absolutely. But uh, uh, I believe Mac did succeed in uh, collecting some fragments. Well, not really. I mean, he... He worked with a, a, a physicist at uh, MIT, actually, mm-hmm. who I quote in the book, Dave Pritchard. And, um, and this MIT atomic scientist who had wonderful credentials, he was a mentor to Nobel Prize winners, and uh, he was in very, very good standing at MIT. Um, and he put together a conference, actually, that I write about in the book. Um, but he obtained uh, one of these uh, so-called implants, and had it tested by experts at MIT, and they did all kinds of very sophisticated tests, spectrographs and mm. breaking down the materials in it. And in the end, they realized, they said, the scientists reported that it was something that grew in the body. Um, it was organic. It was um, seemingly natural. It was, so that turned out to be a dead end, and Pritchard was very disheartened by that. But did and, they know what it was? You see something that grows in the body. Well, it was, yeah, it was something natural that was produced. In other words, there was nothing found in in that uh, object um, that was clearly extraterrestrial. Mm. In other words, if they had found something that said, this material does not appear on Earth, it would be easy to say, okay, it must be something from off off the Earth. But it it wasn't. It it was completely biological. And um, so that, uh, that theory collapsed. Um, now, could there be other implants that are uh, alien or so? Uh, could be, but they haven't produced them yet. No, but I think it's problematic that we already from the outset demand it has to be extraterrestrial. Uh, if the phenomenon 
and we can probably uh, philosophize about these things as we go. But okay. already now, we'll say if the phenomenon is uh, obviously it's real, but if it's let's say interdimensional or metaphysical somehow, you know we are psychosomatic beings. So who's to say it couldn't leave physical tracks? For example, something could grow in your body <laughs> by no. such an experience. I mean, people can get gray hair overnight if, uh, given enough stress. So right. uh, who's to say it could be a manifestation of the encounter? Well, that's right. I mean, uh, if these aliens are so clever that they can create these craft that evade detection and you know appear and disappear, uh, maybe they can produce an object that appears to be biological. Uh, mm. That's another question. Perhaps it's a way of covering the tracks. Mm. So uh, it opens the way to more questions, really, rather than yeah. answers them. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's how we learn, right? Um, the most important thing, I think, is to rule out things, which is very hard too. Right. But the elimination method is usually the better way to get at it. So. Uh, Mr. Mack then, he, but he's, he, he was disheartened by this, but uh, his case didn't rest upon this little exotic aspect of it, right? Not at all. I mean, look, he was, he was a very eminent psychiatrist. He had um, written a very respected book on nightmares, so he knew what nightmares were and weren't. Uh, he had studied childhood development, so when children talked about these strange experiences, he could sort of rule out fantasy because he spent a lot of time uh, with, with children. And uh, some of the children had these encounters or strange experiences uh, even before the age when they could read. So it's not like they read a book about aliens and then were you know, repeating the story. So he found that, that quite compelling. Yeah, a, a good case study for that would be Zimbabwe, wouldn't it? Yeah. Where they don't have it in their culture as a thing. Uh, exactly. Um, and that was one of the stories I ended my book with. Uh, he went to um, Zimbabwe, uh, where a, a, a 60 children, school children, elementary school children, uh, all reported basically the same thing. They saw a craft land. They saw two little beings get out. They received telepathic messages from these beings. They later drew pictures of what they had seen. All the pictures basically corresponded. And uh, these children were really uh, too young. Uh, Mac, Mac decided based on his experience with you know, psychiatry and psychology, they were too young to all agree on a basic story to tell. They were just telling what they saw. And um, that makes for very uh, compelling evidence. Now, uh, it, it's always evidence that is, not, is, is less than physical hard physical scientific evidence that can be shown to prove something. It's always indicative or it, it leads to circumstantial. Yeah. Circumstantial, um, which is one of the hallmarks of this strange phenomenon. Mm. But uh, I know that this Zimbabwe thing has got a renaissance now because there's a new documentary where they are interviewed uh, X a year, a number of years after they're all grown up now and they're all yes. still sticking to the story. But can you tell us these pictures they made? Are we talking classical grays? What kind of images did they? Um, yeah, I mean, not not sort of creatures with big heads and and large black elliptical eyes, and the craft was you know sort of some kind of a saucer shaped craft uh, that the children saw and drew and. Um, yeah, and Max spent a lot of time with the children for some reason, which is, again, very mysterious. None of the adults uh, seem to have 
been present to witness that. They were all preoccupied at different different parts of the school at that wow. time of recess. So um, uh, there were no adults who saw what the, what the children saw. Whether that was worked out by the aliens yeah. in advance is another of the many mysteries. Well, it, it's not it's not as uh, outrageous as it sounds at the surface, because um, like uh, Dr. Jacques Vallée proved uh, already back in the seventies in his book, um, I think it's in Messengers of Deception. Right, he proved that he did a basic statistical analysis of the phenomenon and he proved that uh, you know most of these cases are like oh i just happened to cross they were repairing their ship or they were it's always accidental sightings right but he proves that um, they can't many times yeah um and and the you know the uh, film you're referencing uh, an aerial phenomenon by randy nickerson was one of the um people who john mack one of his first, uh, I don't want to necessarily call them patients because there was nothing wrong with them. <laughs> One of the first subjects right. that, that John Mack interviewed for his, his first book at great length. And by the way, John Mack did these interviews as case studies. He went into their histories to show that they were not suffering from the psychosis. They were not mentally ill. They didn't have a, a pecuniary interest in making up a story to make money. You know, he he ruled out all these things as a psychiatrist mm. that might come to mind initially as the reason why these people might be making up a fake story. So uh, Randy Nickerson was one of the people who had some of these very strange experiences and went to John Mack and became a, um, one of his most important uh, uh, studies, really. And then he ended up making this film about the children from the school in Zimbabwe both what they saw at the time, because Mac went there mm. then in 1996, I believe, or 1997, uh, and interviewed them. But then uh, Randy Nicholson went back and interviewed these uh, children later when they were grown up, and they still remembered what had happened very vividly. Mm. And that adds a special dimension to the story because it affected their lives. They never forgot what they'd seen and what it meant to them. And uh, so they, they they could look back and analyze the phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, like I said, um, Valet, Doctor Valet, proved that they, we can't explain these encounters uh, like statistically. It shows that if it was r random chance, every time people encounter them, they would have I forgot the number, but they would have to land almost every minute everywhere. Right. So he concludes that they want that they are staged, that they are arranged, and if they have the sophistication to do that, they can probably also have the sophistication to, you know, show themselves to children and elude. Um, adults yeah yes and, and and we know classical cases where the people are in cars right and uh, sometimes it's like mass sighting sometimes it's selective sighting so this well, that's absolutely right consciousness is key is my point consciousness is a part of this yeah uh, absolutely right and one of the things that skeptics they, they call themselves skeptics a real skeptic is somebody who keeps an open mind True. but these people are just debunkers yeah. but one of the things they say is um well these are just nightmares but they don't only happen at night they could be or, or sleep paralysis they also say that yeah, yeah. sleep paralysis or yeah. uh, you know all these conditions which do exist actually with sleep paralysis but oh, the, some of these, many of these encounters happen in broad daylight, um, mm. and um, and one person will see it, and another person won't, which is another 
aspect of the very strange phenomenon. Mm. So they, they, you know, Jacques Vallée is absolutely right. If these things were happening with, with the frequency that you might imagine, everybody would be seeing landings. You know, they'd be landing on the White House lawn, they'd be landing in Central yeah. Park. It doesn't happen that way. No, no. So it's very mysterious. But uh, is it true that you are also looking into, you kind of uh, follow in Max track and, and dealing with uh, experiencers? Well, I, I have kept up with many of the experiences that uh, he dealt with mm. and people since then. Um, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by you know, the, what they say they, they remember or what they say clearly happened to them. And they insist that this is not a dream. This is not a nightmare. It happened during waking hours. Uh, so I have kept up with them. I, I wrote a, a, a story um, since the book came out about some of these experiences and one story is wilder than the next i mean these people encounter reptilian beings they um uh, i mean it's just uh, one one story i i heard from from one of these experiencers as he was uh, walking up the stairs of his uh, house as a, as a young as a boy and he looked down through the slats of the stairs and he saw an alien being Uh, going uh, rifling through his family's laundry um and he, he he was terrified he ran upstairs and um that stayed with him mm -hmm. that came from or what that was about <laughs> who knows that was as a child all of our files are free and will remain free if you like the show You can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the pay link on our webpage. Thanks. But uh, what is uh, some of the commonalities that permeate most of these stories? Yeah. Well, this is what, uh, what convinced Mac that there was something real actually going on that there was a, um, uh, a correspondence uh, among all these stories. They were different, for sure, in, in details, but um, the basic story seemed to be um, told again and again. People would be uh, in their bedrooms at night or even driving a car or so. They'd become aware often of, of a UFO in, in the proximity. These, thing, these experiences often have to do with the UFO, but not always. And the car would come to a stop if it was they were driving. The, the engine would would fail, or if they were home in bed, they would become aware of these beings materializing, walking through walls, right? Walking through walls uh, or coming closed windows. Mm. Uh, the, the beings were often described as short, grayish beings, uh, robotic type beings with large eyes that were very hypnotic. Mm. Um, rubbery looking and they would take the people out <laughs> through through their walls or through a closed window to a waiting craft um um and often no not the beams not beaming them well you, yeah you could say beaming because they were uh, somehow the, the people felt they were being transported mm. uh, through closed windows or through solid walls um And then they found themselves in, in some kind of a ship, and they all they, they described these 
Uh, these ships in very similar terms with kind of a whitish light, uh, rounded corners of everything, mm. like you would have in a saucer-shaped craft. Yeah. Um, very little furniture, no signs of the kind of amenities that we would expect in any kind of a line craft, no kitchens, bathrooms, furniture. It was a table that these people would be laid out on, and um, there would be various... Um, and pseudo-medical probes of women felt that they would have their uh, eggs removed uh, from their ovaries and men would have uh, a semen taken uh, for what they later believed or thought they understood was hybrid breeding because later some of the people felt they were abducted again and were shown their uh, their children. Mm-hmm. Um, very strange stories, but they came up again and again. And, and often... The people describe these instruments on the craft in very, very detailed terms. Um, they seem to be not like uh, u- the usual medical instruments. Um, and so, they, but they were very specific in their descriptions of these things. And uh, um, so, these stories, as I said, had many little differences, but also many basic similarities. And and Mac was struck by how often the people with no um, communication between them describe very similar uh, experiences. So again, very mysterious, no explanation for sure. Nobody can say, you know, uh, what these experiences amount to or or why or how they come about and why some people are taken and not other people. That's another Hmm. interesting mystery seems to run in families that if a child... But, but, But all ethnicities? All ethnicities, all backgrounds, they are... There are people of very high education. There are law enforcement people. There's medical people. There's lawyers. There's teachers. There's housewives, um, men, women, children, um, and again from all over the world. Um, there's a film now about uh, a very strange uh, episode in Brazil, uh, Varinga, um, about uh, three girls who, uh, which John Mack investigated back then who encountered a being on the street and fled in terror because they thought it was the devil. Mm-hmm. And later, it, it appeared that the police responded to that, that some being might have been taken into custody. There's a lot of stories about that. It's still very open investigation. They, they took the being into custody? Well, uh, according to some accounts, uh, more than one being was recovered and uh, died later. In custody was autopsied. Wow. Uh, people who handled the being, one guy died. I mean, it goes on and on. Now there was a whole. It's just a, a film um, came out uh, just this year, last year, um, uh, about it, and um, uh, they're still trying to find records that can. You know, they interviewed this the three girls again, two sisters and a, and a friend, um, and you know the story is. Uh, uh, holds. I mean, their story has not changed. What they saw, um, other people uh, contributed their experiences, sort of backing up what the sisters said. Again, there's no confirmation. There's no proof. There's no body. There's no, uh, you know, scientific analysis. No papers. But there are some very strange aspects to that story. Mm. Yeah. Well, I can actually see. Um potential relationship between laying in bed and driving because i mean obviously when you lay in bed you are 
quieting down the bit because it, like i said this is connected to consciousness and right. beta frequency is the one you and me are in now we are thinking we're analyzing we're talking when you lay in bed you're slowing down your mind and you're often drifting into theta right this is known in meditation etc and the same can happen when you drive if it's long roads monotone monotony not much to catch the and especially not if you listen if you're not listening to anything intellectually demanding you can kind of glide into this suggestive uh, kind of um, right. uh, consciousness field i'm not saying this is fantasy or not real quite on the opposite i'm saying if somehow we need to alter our consciousness to encounter these things especially if they are also physical manifestations which we'll get back to with UAPs. Okay. And we don't know what they are, but they somehow seems to be both physical and uh, mind-inducing. So they have a relation, they have a physical existence to them, and they have a consciousness aspect to them. Right. And the, I mean, this field, nobody knows anything really. So who's to say that right. this can't That's be... The truth. <laughs> That's the truest thing you can say, Al. <laughs> right. Nobody really knows anything. Yeah. And, and and you really, when you approach this very strange field, that, that's the humility you have to come with. Yeah. Because the people who are so convinced, uh, you know, Jacques Vallée likes to say he's the only ufologist who doesn't know what a UFO is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and you, you really have to keep your humility and, and keep the, the questions open. Because in those people who have made up their minds, oh, it's clearly this or it's clearly that, it's sleep paralysis, it's mm. insanity, it's uh, the people looking to make money. I mean, uh, all these quick explanations don't hold up. It's No, but I, I say the same for the so-called believers, those who say, no, these are set up creatures from Sirius. These are this, these are that. Right. Well, it's, it's the same kind of mistake. It is. I mean, it's on both sides. But if, yes. if these if these things are happening in everyday reality, why don't we see them? Mm. Like I said, I, th I think you need there's something about a consciousness that demands some kind of uh, priming. I think um, from just from the data. Um, right. And uh, but then again, like we have up here in Norway. I, I don't think there's a lot of extraterrestrial like beings involved in these sightings, but there are crafts involved as, as well as energy and light and right. one of the physical traces they often leave are electromagnetic signatures uh, even radiation right uh yeah well that's one of the things that they try to uh, study and see what if, if people have reported a ufo landing what scientific evidence is there afterwards um in the electromagnetic makeup of the field i mean is the grass disturbed are the trees disturbed and they have found some indications of physical residue afterwards you know things disturbed mm. um, so um and and the electromagnetic signature is one of those things but never to the point where it's it's a slam dunk you know mm. it's mm. never completely clear so that it can resolve all ambiguities that's that's the the, the, the signature of this phenomenon it always leaves some ambiguity and there's always room for doubt yeah here in norway it's not room for doubt but uh, ambiguity is there and uh, there's like not one explanation fits all that's the problem right and and uh, when they think they have it bam something else disproves it so um and i do think that if you are if you look at the hypothetical science to explain for example wormhole etc 
when you raise frequency so high, you are touching into the consciousness field. So mm-hmm. who knows? Maybe maybe existence isn't like a clear cut. We are used from the Abrahamic religions, a clear duality between so-called spirit and, and matter, right? right? But what if there's just frequency differences? There's a lot of things that can complicate this picture. Right. Well, you know, you just brought up an interesting segue because – uh, one of the things that that happened to John Mack before he got interested in, in UFOs and uh, alien beings, mm. he was studying consciousness raising, and he he got very involved in ho- something called holotropic breath work, which is ah. a breathing exercise that right. elevates your consciousness without drugs. Mm. He also tried drugs, but um, mm. this was a way of controlling your breathing, which the, you know the. Uh, Sufic masters uh, had also experimented with, and Dr. Stanislav Grof has written extensively right. on it. And Grof uh, had a he he developed this protocol where people would breathe rhythmically to music, and they they got into a kind of a trance. And Mac again before he he ever discovered UFOs and aliens, um, he he tried this, he practiced this, and he found himself taken back to his early childhood. Actually, even in the womb, um, his mother had died of um, appendicitis when he was eight and a half months old. So he never really knew her, but he always felt her loss. And in in one of these breathing uh, exercises, he went into a kind of a trance and he imagined himself in the womb struggling to be born. And then he had another vision of himself as a, a Russian peasant in the 17th century watching his son being decapitated by a mongol warrior wow and he, later on he went you know where did that come from mm-hmm. um and was it a previous life some people you know there's a lot of research and yeah. now reincarnation and that's another whole aspect to this strange uh, yeah we had the doctor arlenson who's done some research into that go on right and and uh, um evan um uh, whatever his name is wrote a book alexander yeah, Evan Alexander wrote a book about you know his mm. what he did his previous life and another book about a, a little boy who experienced um, uh, life as a fighter pilot. Uh, you know he knew things about the fighter pilot. Uh, he knew things about the fighter pilot that he couldn't have possibly have known. Mm. Anyway, um, so that's what Mac thought. Well, maybe he tuned into some kind of previous life. But then he thought, well, maybe consciousness is just fluid in some way and can travel and inhabit these different personalities and time periods. So he mm. he came away very confused. He, he didn't know, but he often came back to that story about how he was he could uh, imagine his mother uh, from a time when he couldn't really, uh, since she died when he was eight and a half months old, he couldn't have known very much about her. And he couldn't have articulated any experience. You know, it's like those near-death experiences where the, the, the person's on the table, the heart stops, the brain function stops, and they listen to every conversation in the room. Mm. And later on, they say, oh, the doctor said this, and the nurse said this, and the people are saying, what? How could you know? You were dead. How could you know this? Mm. And um, that story comes up again and again. So as you said, consciousness, um, it, it, it has aspects to it that we don't understand. But uh, Mac, I think, got into this via a chap called Buddy Hopkins. What's the story there? Yeah. How, how, how did he enter it? So at one of these holotropic breathing uh, sessions in in, um, in in California or uh, up in British Columbia, 
where he went with Stan Groff, uh, he ran into a, a, um, a woman who was had an interesting story of her own. She was a psychiatrist who called herself a victim of uh, these mind control experiments of the CIA, which, uh, by the way, confirmed that the CIA was doing these horrible things. To people. It was before it was acknowledged? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the CIA had, had done these experiments where they gave uh, LSD to people to see, you know, what their reaction would be. And yeah. uh, MK Ultra was the, the name of the uh, super secret operation that only came out years later. Anyway, she said she was a victim of that. But at the time, she was also participating in the breathwork experiments of Stan Groff with Mac. And she told Mac about this guy named Bud Hopkins, who was a friend of hers, who was an artist who was um, uh, investigating uh, accounts of people who uh, had told of, of meeting aliens and being abducted by aliens and being on their spaceships. And so she tried to interest Mac in that. And he said, no, it sounds too crazy. You know, nothing he'd be interested in. And then and not long after that, he was in New York visiting a good friend of his. And he suddenly, for, for reasons that, again, are kind of mysterious, decided to give Bud Hopkins a call. Um, now, Bud Hopkins was a, an artist, a very good artist. He'd been exhibited in the Museum of Modern Art, and he was a, a colleague of other artists who were very uh, well-known post-expressionists. And um, so Mac went to visit Hopkins, and Hopkins showed him all these letters that he had gotten from people recounting these experiences. And Mac was intrigued because he was a psychiatrist. Hopkins was an artist who was just sort of dabbling in this field of UFO research, but but uh, Mac was really an expert, and he looked at the letters and he said these people are recounting what seems to be very real experiences to them, and he collected his own circle of abductees or experiencers, as you said he liked to call them, mm -hmm. and he also quickly realized that their accounts can, could not be easily explained. All the the simple explanations that they were imagining it or hallucinating or mentally ill. Nothing explained what they had encountered. And when they told of their experiences to Mac, they did it with such uh, powerful uh, emotions and affect that he said they, they couldn't be making this up. There's something must have happened to these people, which he, you know, he could not explain. But that's what, what got him interested. Mm -hmm. So Bud Hopkins played a very important part in his, in his evolution. But of course, no good deed goes unpunished. What's the story about Harvard trying to yeah. oust him? Well, of course, Mac came out with his first book called Abduction, where he tried, by the way, he tried to publish in peer reviewed journals, uh, but nobody would have him really. And the problem was. He, he, should have used the, he should have used the word UAP. Maybe that would have happened. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the problem also is that the phenomenon is so complicated that you can't really explain it in you know, a few thousand words. No. So he, uh, he, he wrote up a very long account of his, his studies, and um, no journal would publish it. Wow. So he said, okay, I'm going to write a book. So he wrote the book. The book was very. Uh, controversial and very it was a good book i mean it was solidly recounted the stories of 13 case studies of people he had he had worked with he went into the histories to show that it was not anything he could easily explain he published the book and and harvard was kind of scandalized uh because people were making fun of, of mac and, and harvard and so they convened a secret i call it an inquisition which it really was 
And um, they questioned him about his beliefs and his methods and his finances. And in the end, uh, they concluded he really didn't do anything wrong. Uh, he was perhaps a little too enthusiastic. He was a little, he was, he, that was his makeup. He was a very um, uh, enthusiastic type of fellow who didn't care much about how something might look. But was he tenured? Yes, he was not only tenured, but he was a mainstay of the Harvard faculty. I mean, he'd written books. He, as I said, he won a Pulitzer Prize. So he was very well established. So they couldn't just fire him. But, uh, no, hard to get rid of that guy. No, but yeah. they were looking for something that he did wrong, some big mistake he had made, and they really couldn't find it. Hmm. So they said, look, you were a little too enthusiastic, um, a little, you know, um, um, intemperate, let's say. He was. He went on the Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, with some of his experiencers, he he he, he wasn't careful. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, that was his his makeup. He was financially secure. He was very uh, confident, perhaps overconfident. Um, he was not afraid. He was not easily you know, cowed. So uh, all the kind of things that an academician is not supposed to be. He was supposed to be cautious and and mm -hmm. and melt into the background and you know be tweedy and. Uh, yeah. Uh, and but he was flamboyant and he was open. Yeah, and like you said, he was already well known, didn't he? Wasn't he involved in peace treaty? Yeah, well, he, uh, he he was a very active anti-war protester. He was arrested protesting nuclear weapons in, in Nevada. And he met Dalai Lama, I think. And he had gone to see the Dalai Lama, although that was secret, actually. Oh. That only came out. My book is really the only account of that. Oh, wow. He went to see the Dalai Lama because the Dalai Lama was very interested in these strange experiences because the Eastern mysticism deals, uh, deals with that all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, Buddhism. And um, so um, he was among a group of people who met with the Dalai Lama and described these Uh, alien encounters to the Dalai Lama, who was very intrigued and and didn't think them that strange, actually. Mm -hmm. So um, he had done that, but he'd also been very public about his interest, and he'd gone on TV and he'd done a lot of radio interviews and articles, and he was written up in the New York Times. So Harvard took that amiss, and uh, that's why they called him in and convened this secret uh, this inquisition. But he had very very good lawyers who uh, really ran circles around Harvard. And uh, eventually, they they dropped the case. Okay, so they never managed to dismantle to to, to knock him down from his throne. No, mm. they never did. Mm. I mean, what they did is they they cost him a lot of money in legal fees. Yeah, uh, they cost him a lot of heartache, yeah. and he he was diverted from his main re you know research because he had exactly. to devote time to these hearing these private um, sessions with the committee and answering all their questions. So it, it took a huge toll on him. Mm. But uh, I think we should also mention something uh, that you, you just in bypass uh, said something about, and that's his death, because like okay. you said, there was a lot of speculation, and you say you look into it. So could you provide some more meat to that skeleton? Why are you convinced that it was an honest, okay. should we say, drunk driving incident and not something sinister? Right. Well, I mean, this field is so shot through with conspiracies and uh, the Internet, as you know, is the Wild West. So all kinds of Obviously. theories and speculations are circulating back and forth. Anyone can say anything. But what I got was police reports from, from London and including interviews with the, with the driver who hit him, who uh, was a, 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 a... So they got the man. 
Say again. They got the man who did it, the perpetrator. Oh, they go. Oh, he stopped immediately. He he ran. See, John Mack was was there for a thirty year anniversary of his book on um, Lawrence of Arabia. So he'd been to a lot of conferences. He was coming out of the underground the subway YouTube station at eleven thirty at night. He was very tired. He looked the wrong way, <laughs> mm. um, as as Americans tend to do in uh, in England. Uh, <laughs> I got that. And yeah. the car came from behind him. The guy had been to a, um, a a military veterans function where he had too much, a little too much to drink. Um, he was clearly inebriated, and he could, he didn't see Mac in time. Now maybe if he wasn't drunk, he wouldn't have been able to stop either. But either way, he hit Mac, mm-hmm. and uh, Mac went flying, and um, he died a few hours later. Um, and um, uh, I got the police reports. I know the the name of the guy who hit him. Who, stayed around, gave police statements. Uh, there was all kinds of you know investigation. Um, it really was an open and shut case. There was nothing to suggest that the guy who hit him knew who he was. Um, and a lot of you know stories that circulated later that another man named John Mack was killed at the same time. And that proved not to be true. I mean, it was just a myth. Okay. So, and I know his family asked for clemency for the drunk driver. His family was very, very enlightened, and they saw that the guy you know, didn't mean any ill, and he was a sad case. They asked that he not be uh, uh, sent to, to jail. I think he was. He did some time in prison. Uh, he lost his license, hmm. and uh, I mean, it was clear what had happened. I mean, he just had too much to drink, and he didn't stop in time. Now, whether he could have stopped uh, is also doubtful. But it was just a series of circumstances. But, you know, um, Al, what I say at the end of the book is there were a lot of stories later on about how Mac appeared to people after he died. Wow. And um, these are, again, uh, ordinary you know, people. They're not uh, uh, nutcases who told stories about us. Uh, you know, being visited by Mac's spirit uh, so after he died, which were very strange. And um, uh, But you're talking about this uh, window, uh, I think it's seven days after the death, is, is that what or, or could it be years after? No, it was short. Well, um, it happened at different times. There were various experiences, uh, one of which happened several years later. But mm-hmm. um, again, no, no proof. I mean, nobody has a... Can, bring forth any scientific information, but uh, one woman uh, who's written about uh, encounters herself has said that she was visiting her her daughter in California and she was allergic. The woman was allergic to her daughter's cat and suffered a, um, uh, an allergic reaction and couldn't breathe and suffocating. And she felt Mac appear and said and say to her, don't worry, you'll be all right. And a ball of light entered her chest, and she suddenly could breathe again. Now, that's the story she told. And obviously, she knew Mac already, right? She knew Mac, yeah. yeah. She knew she was supposed to do a program with him. As a matter of fact, she told a great story. She said she was supposed to appear at a conference with Mac talking about reptilian beings, which are these reptile-like beings that some people you know, report encountering, very warlike beings. And she was supposed to um, present at a, a conference with Mac uh, then, of course, then he was killed, and she didn't know whether she should continue. And he appeared to her in a dream uh, or in a vision and said to, to her, call my assistant and, uh, and tell her that uh, I want you to have my notes for the conference. And they're in the bookcase 
this part of the bookcase, this shelf facing out, gave specific directions. Wow. So she called the, the, the assistant and there were the notes and she gave them to the woman and she went to the conference and delivered the lecture. <laughs> now that, <laughs> that that's another story she, she told and other people have told other stories. So yeah. again, it's, it's just, it's a hall of mirrors. You don't know. Yeah. These are experiences that people vouch for. They say it absolutely happened. Can they prove it? No, but it's, it's just very interesting. Yeah. Because we can rule out all the basics, which uh, why we're left. I mean, most science dealing with people, this is how they collect ground data. Well, that's right. So it's as scientific as anything else dealing with reports. And you bring up a very good point that science really has become very orthodox and very limiting. Um, and they're not only, I'm not the only one saying this, there are people like Avi Loeb, um, who's written about uh, possible extraterrestrial objects coming into our atmosphere and, and you know orbit, who say that science is just rejecting things out of hand that they should really be studying. Yeah. So, um, it, well, what's this guy's name? Maybe I want to invite him on. What's his name again? Avi Loeb. He's very well known. He wrote a book called Extraterrestrial. He's working on another book. He is the um, head of the uh, Harvard um, Astrophysics unit, LEB. Yeah, he's a theoretical physicist. Found it. Yeah. yeah. He, well, yeah, he's a he's a he's a physicist, and uh, he he posts um, he writes um, you know almost daily on on the web, um, and he's studying in particular an object that came into the atmosphere and crashed into the ocean um, in in twenty eighteen or nineteen around then. And they're looking for the fragments now um, because he thinks uh, a reason to believe uh, from the studies that this object uh, didn't conform to normal space debris. I mean, it was not a meteorite. Uh, so uh, it's, the analysis suggested it, it had properties that might make it manufactured. In other words, not natural. Mm. So they're looking for the fragments now. They'll be doing it this year. But uh, every lobe, I'm you know been in touch with him. He's a very eminent scientist. He doesn't talk about aliens, but he talks about extraterrestrial intelligence and uh, search for intelligence in the universe. Mm, yeah, he's he's looking for them in the physical universe. Um, so he's going to lim be limited by that at least. But they are there too. So. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I have to say about Mac, he, he became 74. So no wonder he died from this uh, car accident. He wasn't a young stallion. Yeah, he was He was not in good shape by that time. I mean, and I suggest in my book that he, he'd been thinking about death for a long time. He was actually getting more and more interested in the whole question of survival of consciousness. He was playing a book about a woman uh, who, who also died very young. Um, and who had uh, certain psychic gifts, and her father had was one of the uh, main uh, researchers into remote viewing, Russell mm. Tarr, mm. where people have a gift of seeing things physically thousands of miles away. Um, uh, that again, it's not explained uh, unexplainable by any way we know we know of today. But this ability of remote viewing, seeing things at great distances, uh, is one of the, you know, one of the sort of psychological 
mysteries that scientists are trying to unravel as well. Uh, one of the many anomalies that they're trying to understand. So Mac was getting interested in this, and um, he was planning a book just just when it was run over. Mm. Bad timing. Well, uh, speaking of timing, we only have about 50 minutes left. We've got to plug your stuff at the end here, but uh, I have a couple of more subjects. We have to move on from Mac now. Yeah. So uh, I want to discuss... Um, how the I mean, we know you contributed to the disclosure via New York Times, but what's this other story about these TikToks? And we mentioned Harry Reid, we mentioned Tom DeLong, Alessandro. What really happened there? Can you give us the the abbreviated version of that development? Yeah, well, um, Tom DeLong is a very accomplished musician from a, a band called the Blink uh, 183, I believe. Got very interested in the whole idea of uh, extraterrestrial life, and uh, with his money at his disposal, he financed a uh, um, an institute to um, you know conduct scientific work. He he hired not Elizondo directly, people associated with Elizondo, others people from the government, and uh, he pursuing his own research institute. He, he was very uh, uh, influential in in, in uh, feeding interest in the phenomenon. So uh, he got a hold of the videos as well as we did uh, in the, at the New York Times. Um, so uh, we just went on different paths. I mean, he, he's okay. ah, so so both of you got it. You didn't get it from uh, to the stars people. You get it directly. No, absolutely not. Ah. Uh, we did not. But we we had it at the same time. Right. But we were able to put it together with the story, which which really was what caused the impact. Mm. But um, so he's you know he's doing his research, and we 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 didn't tie ourselves to him. We we did it on, on our own. Right. So that, that's where that stands. So Harry Reid, though um, he um, I think him and George Knapp were cooperating at the same time. Yeah. Well, Reid was a senator from Nevada. George is from uh, not Nevada. Um, they know each other a long time. And um, Reed was very interested in this phenomenon for a long time. Um, and he was very powerful because he was the majority leader of the, of the Senate. And he could get money, which he, which he got, the $22 million in the, in the black budget of the Pentagon uh, for this research, which was not announced at the time. Clearly, he got that money back in 2007. And it wasn't always called ATIP. It had other names, this... Uh, advanced aerospace threat identification program uh, had had some classical uh, some classified aspects to it uh, although the agency itself the stuff we dealt with was not classified but reed was very interested in this from the beginning and he's talked about this he was always intrigued by uh stories of of uh, extraterrestrial so he was open about his interest before the story broke um not too much actually uh uh, it wasn't really known until we broke the story of how he got the money. Mm -hmm. But after that, uh, he he talked about it. He said these are all good questions mm -hmm. and they need answers. Yeah. And um, he was friendly with other senators who had interesting experience. Ted Ted Stevens of uh, Alaska and another senator uh, who all uh, I mean you know after World War II, some of these senators go back to to World War II. And some of them have had experiences uh, of uh, encountering what they call Foo Fighters, these uh, strange lights that uh, 
Uh, the American pilots thought they were enemy aircraft. The uh, Japanese and Germans thought they were Americans. Every every country thought it was somebody else's technology. Yeah. In the end, there were these balls of, of light that no one could explain. And uh, they you know, were, were written up at the time as mysteries. So Reed came out of that, that uh, world after World War II where these encounters were, uh, were, were emerging. Uh, but he didn't make much announcement of it till we broke the story that he got the money. And then uh, through interview, interviews we did and other people did, he said, yeah, I was always interested in this mystery of um, what these things were. And uh, the government played a very nefarious role, really, in shutting down debate or trying to shut down debate. They called the people crazy who reported this. They dismissed the accounts as, you know, hallucinations or fiction because the government couldn't explain it and didn't want to admit that there was something up there that they didn't understand. And not just up there, by the way, these things uh, seem to have been seen underwater mm. and operating underwater. So the new name for this is the all domain uh, uh, anomalous uh, you know, research office, because it's not just in the sky. They may be operating under underwater. Mm. So, um, but but Reed was courageous enough to to get the money to study this and to face the criticism later when it came out that uh, the ridicule that always accompanies the subject. Hmm. And Mike Gravel was another senator who was in the right. fronting this thing. Exactly, um, he was participating in citizens' disclosure, for example. Yeah, but. Um, these uh, UAPs then, and I prefer that word because it's more precise than UFO, uh, and people yeah. who are against that word, they think it's like a psyop. But the truth of the matter is uh, military launched UFOs in the 50s, and the same people launched the term UAP in the 60s. Right. <laughs> so it's like, okay, pick your poison then. Yeah, I I'm going with UAP, but we all know it's the same thing anyway. So It is, it is. But, uh, and you know the, yeah. the military just didn't like the the image of UFO. They thought it was too Hollywood, right? Entertainment yeah. oriented. But yeah. either way, we know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but what are they talking about? Because these Tic Tacs, uh, explain that uh, footage that you got. And I thought uh, okay. I, I th always thought you were like somehow tied to this. You actually, you must have gotten that footage before Tom DeLonge. Otherwise, because uh, the the guy uh, Alessandro he got tied up to Tom DeLonge. So he, if he was tied up by the time you talked with him, wouldn't he ask you to go through? Well. Uh, well, first of all, Al, the, the, the Tic Tacs, so-called, yeah. um, were not captured in, in any of the videos. These were described by pilots like Dave uh, Fraser, Fraver, mm -hmm. um, who's one of the pilots we quoted in the article and wrote up. These pilots have seen these objects. Uh, they didn't get pictures of, 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 of the objects as Tic Tacs. They're called Tic Tacs because they look like that white you know, candy yeah. that has rounded edges. It's sort of oblong. Uh, with rounded edges and white with no air, you know, no wing surface, no rivets, no anything that would suggest the propulsion. It mm. just looks like a giant flying Tic Tac candy. Mm. Um, but that was not, they're not, there are no photographic images of that uh, or videos of that. Um, the, the videos are much more subtle and far away and more like lights and, um, and shapes. But uh, the Tic Tac, 
we're not captured on video, which is another interesting aspect of the phenomenon, that it doesn't lend itself to you know close uh, photography for some reason. Uh, all mm-hmm. the pictures are, and some of them are pretty good, but they're basically uh, far away. They're not that clear. Uh, but as I say, some are better than others, and they, they show clearly a craft, uh, a silvery-looking craft that looked like a, a domed circular object, sometimes with, with looked like what looked like windows. But anyway, so the Tic Tacs uh, were described by, by, by different pilots, but, not, but no images have emerged of them. Okay. Well, some of the footage I've seen, you know, there is radar things. They, they looked like... Uh... What you say, they're um, flat oval Tic Tacs, but that those are well. Not- I mean, some of the radar things show some triangles, ah. and some of them are controversial because they look like aberrant, possible aberrations of the lens. Some look like you know rounded things, but they're not clear images of Tic Tacs. Right, right. So that that rests on uh, uh, testimony. And and was it Alessandro who was your source? Who was your source? Well, we don't really talk about so- sources apart from the ones we quoted in the story. But yeah, okay, they take the open sources. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we, we quoted Alessandro uh, openly, uh, who uh, gave us you know a lot of information. By the way, uh, he is, he remains uh, under wrap under under uh, national under classified guidelines, so he can't talk about a lot of the things that he was involved in. Mm. Uh, an intelligence officer, so he, he did some things and participated in things that he can't talk about. All right. Uh, and we, we respected that. We did not disclose any classified information in any of our articles because we didn't want to go to jail. <laughs> no. And uh, not that they not that any of these people would have told us classified stuff to begin with, but we weren't trafficking in, you know, in secret information. But uh, Alessandro was one of the people, Chris Mellon, who uh, had a high position in the Defense Department, uh, was very helpful in getting us information. He's very active now in the movement to greater disclosure. Mm. He's a part of the Mellon banking family from years and years ago. He's Uh he's a real establishment figure, but he's very smart. Mm. Mm. And he's been involved in this field in the defense establishment for a long time. So... um, you know, the people we quote, our sources, by and large, were on the record, and we identified them in the times. Now, we spoke to some other people who didn't want to be named or didn't come forward, but we don't really talk about them. But these were not articles that depended on a lot of secret sources, no. which I think gave them the strength that they had. They were all people who came forward and were identified. You could see their expertise, and uh, and that's what I think. Uh, helped establish the credibility of the articles. Well, uh, I'll tell you, the last topic is, um, uh, you know, if the American government or or military or the the whole complex there doesn't want, first of all, they admit there are secrets. Uh, There are secret uh, recordings, there are secret evidence. Obviously, I I don't think they know everything, but they know something that's not out in the open. That goes without saying. It's a job to (laughs) assess this and take it seriously, as they obviously have. Now, there is um, Dr. Mark Skidmore and uh, former HUD uh, secretary uh, under Bush, Catherine Orson Fitz. They are proven and they are actually the reason Pentagon finally is getting audits. They're proven that it started with 20 trillion 
unaccountable adjustments or whatever they call it. Now it's up to 50 trillion. And okay. the normal interpretation of this among those who analyze this is that it has been flushed into a so-called classified space program. The same space program Reagan mentioned is in his memoirs. He probably was too demented to mm. stop his mouth. Right. <laughs> yes, that uh, I mean, Trump isn't demented, but he, he also is a big mouth and um, he has said something. And also we have the hacker mechanics who, who they wanted, uh, they wanted to give him the Assange treatment. And so there are so many, this is just some examples. There are so many, and I think many of the physical crafts being observed are uh, exotic, high-tech American military, and and that doesn't mean it's there's nothing fantastic about them. Who knows? It could be back engineered, right? But uh, the yeah. thing is, uh, this is a hot topic that is being censored. And I bet if you had an article about this, you were g- giving to uh, the Times. I don't think that would see the day of light because it's well, still a thing. What do you think about this whole area? Well, if you have even looked into it. We, we have looked into it as much as we can. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of research going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that there are these uh, special access groups that have, are dealing with very advanced technology, whether they are back engineering uh, recovered craft, you know, I don't know. The defense establishment, um, the contractors are clearly involved in, in, in cutting edge research for the government, and they are immune from freedom of information requests, so you can't uh, ask them, uh, ask a private contractor to prove. And this is by design, it's not a coincidence. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. right. I mean, they, they were never covered by uh, freedom of information. Um, Which is why they expropriated most of that research to those contractors. Well, that could be. That's certainly yeah. right. And and there is a, mm. clearly, there's a national security dimension to this. Uh, uh, they're experimenting with all kinds of advanced weapon system and detection systems. So there's a whole area out there, you're absolutely right, that we have no access to, um, no way of knowing what's going on. It's very well protected, um, and it is highly classified. So it, it's very difficult to penetrate that. And I'm, as I said, we're not in the business of, of trying to uh, steal state secrets. Um, mm-hmm. um, if it's classified, it means you, you can't write about it without suffering legal consequences, and the Times is not into that. So, um, but a lot of this information is unclassified and it is open and we are talking to people. And by the way, the new whistleblower law that just got passed uh, in the latest Defense Authorization Act mm-hmm. is a very um, promising and, and powerful new development in that it, it prevents the government from covering up people who want to talk about sightings. And so... Uh, oh, really? Is that specifically mentioned? Yeah, it is. It's it's wow. the new whistleblower law. You can look it up. Uh, it's 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 in the Defense Authorization Act passed last year for this year that provides you know eight hundred billion dollars to the military, and there's a section that says that anybody who comes forward with information about a sighting uh, cannot be uh, prosecuted for for violating um, uh, non-disclosure laws mm. as long as it doesn't transcend into uh, uh, defense secrets. I mean, I guess there's some limit on to, you know, what you know, somebody could say about a secret classified information, mm. but just uh, uh, sightings and things like that that were always covered up by the government for many years. Now these people are encouraged to come forward and they're protected. They can, and we're going to see what, what happens with that because we know of people who have stories to tell 
uh, which are going to be very interesting. So that's the, the promising new dimension. That, you know, this is uh, yeah. this is moving along pretty well and pretty quickly. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, that's our time. So uh, let's go to you. you. You mentioned to me before we went on here a very interesting project you're working on in terms of a new book. Yeah, but uh, Al, when will this air? Actually, oh, it's uh, it's a slow process. First, we after it's edited, which may take a couple of weeks, then we uh, upload it to our members right then it rests there for a few months and then it comes out to the public i will obviously send you the li- uh, link okay here. okay so if you want to plug something it should be several months ahead okay <laughs> i have another a new uh, children's book coming out uh, nice what is the subject of the book uh it's on um uh, ufos well, my wife and i she's a children's book author we have just written a, a children's book on ufos uh, called UFOs, OHS, Miracles in the, in the Sky. It's a children's uh, picture book uh, just explaining the phenomenon in very scientific terms um, wow. without any speculation, no aliens, just uh, these uh, strange objects and, uh, right. and what, what little is known about. Incredible. That must be very virgin. Uh, yeah, there's uh, no other book like that. There's a lot of yeah. fantasy books that uh you know speculate on things and fiction but th- this is strictly non-fiction um which is a, a way of introducing young children to the scientific phenomenon of of ufos there's no aliens in there there's no speculation it's not fiction it's certainly no abduction <laughs> no abductions <laughs> because it's a story uh, just about these objects which the government now says are, are real um, they're not known where they come from, what they're doing here, who's running them, if, if intelligence is involved. It's just so it's educational for the child. Very educational and beautifully illustrated by someone, uh, Adam Gustafson, who's illustrated another book of my wife's, uh, Deborah's book. Um, and it'll be coming out April 15th, 2023, mm. um, from the same publisher who put out uh, my book uh, on John Mack, The Believer. Mm. And um, we think it'll it'll help children understand because this this uh, subject is in in the air. I mean, it's, uh, it's all over TV. It's people are talking about it, but it's it's, all- in, it's in children TV. It's in Hollywood everywhere. Yeah, yeah it's and and it's often ridiculed. It's often put up as, as as a joke. Yeah, but more importantly, to children, it's often presented for the first time in a spooky context. Yeah, it is. And there's, there's something, and we try to demystify the subject. Yeah. We are hoping to present it in a very matter-of-fact way um, and um, as, as a legitimate mystery, which it is. Mm. Uh, you know, nobody knows very much about these objects other than they exist. Mm. And that's something, uh, by the way, that the government many, for many years tried to deny and, didn't, and said that these things are hallucinations and they're fly specks on the windscreen and, you know, all these things, um, <laughs> minimizing them. But now the government is saying, as of the UAP report of 2021, mm. yeah, these objects are real. They, they exist physically. They represent a potential threat to air traffic, mm. which means that they could collide with a, with a plane. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we don't know more more than that, but that's progress that they're saying that. Yeah, and that's big. the tone we want to capture in this book, just to let children know that oh, this is an interesting subject. Um, these things exist. We don't know what they are, but here's how much we do know, and it's a matter of continuing investigation. And obviously, in a way, that won't scare the. Oh no, no, no. Uh, exactly. Yeah. 
and very uh, solidly based and with beautiful illustrations. So that'll be coming out in April. Brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful idea. It's It, it hasn't been done before, right? It, this is, uh, as far as we know, the first book, the first nonfiction book, there's plenty of fiction stories. Yeah, yeah. Aliens and, you know, uh, but this is the first nonfiction book for children that presents the information in a, in a scientifically acceptable way. Hmm. So uh, is the book out yet? No, April 15th. Yeah, do you have a title already? Yeah, UFOs, U-F-O-H-S. Right, uh, right. Miracles in the Sky. Miracles in the Sky, right. Yeah, you, UFOs, we say over here, UFOs. Yeah, UFOs. Mm. And written by myself and my wife, Deborah. She's a children's book writer. Deborah Bl Blumenthal? Deborah Blumenthal, yeah. Mm. And, and by the way, just so people know, You're not you're not the father of Max Blumenthal like I thought. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, I, I guess the Blumenthal name is popular among journalists. <laughs> <laughs> so the book we have been focusing on today uh, again, uh, what was the title? The Believer. Mm. It's called The Believer: Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. Right. So that's the story of Harvard psychiatrist John Mack and his interest in alien encounters that he was hearing from people he was counseling, treating. And um, it's a story of how a Harvard psychiatrist was very well grounded and an expert in his field, uh, highly regarded, Pulitzer Prize winner for Lawrence of Arabia, uh, got captivated, not captured, <laughs> mm. but uh, captivated by this uh, very strange subject. Mm, mm. And and the people who had been captured by it, and the people <laughs> who had been captured, right? Yeah. But you have a lot of books on on your conscience. But this is the only so far about uh, the phenomenon, right? Yes, and that's another good point to make is that I'm not a ufologist. I'm not a regular writer of the subject. I discovered it because it was interesting. I've written other books about organized crime and cultural history and uh, prison reform and very down-to-earth subjects. And I came across this and I thought, well, this is an interesting subject and needs explanation, clarification, and even more important, it's a dramatic tale about uh, a, a Harvard professional who got uh, captivated by this subject, which remains a mystery. I want to go back to that mm thought that they, I don't have answers. No. Nobody has answers. No. Nobody knows what this is about. No. But there are many questions, and we have to acknowledge the questions as legitimate and not ridicule them, Indeed. because there, there is something going on that we don't understand. Uh, hopefully, we'll get some clarity in the years to come, but it, it is very, very strange. Well, if you do, I wouldn't look to our government as the source for that, but... Uh... Who knows? There may be more leaks, etc. Yeah. By the way, you say you haven't, but you have written a lot of articles. In fact, you you could probably collect all your articles on it and put out another book. <laughs> It's possible. <laughs> Too bad they're behind a paywall. I guess you have to subscribe to get them. But I've written, I read some of them. Very interesting. Very clear. All right. So and not forget you one of the guys who actually broke this story so you forever go into history in this field you for history as that yeah. thank you and thank you for from all our listeners al thank you so much a real pleasure to talk to you yeah i know you have to run but uh, i'll send you the link when it's out um, please do right and we take it please from do. there all right all the best. And, uh, and by the way i'll send you the link to the hastal thing you can check it out see if there's something. yes i'm yeah. very interested in that i want to follow up Thank you. Perfect. Bye-bye. All, All the best. best. Yep. yep. You too.
So, there we are. And what are we to make of it all? I want to share some thoughts about aspects of this huge mystery. In lack of a better word, but I think that word actually describes it pretty well. Look, you know that in our that we've devoted many episodes to the material aspect of it. And uh, indeed, I'm on record emphasizing my conviction that most of the sightings of the craft aspect are man-made. Now, for all these years that has passed since the phenomena exploded after the war at the dawn of the nuclear age... The powers that be has had the excuse that they dismiss the entire thing. They do not acknowledge it. And for good reason, because if they had, there's so many things that as soon as it's acknowledged, that has to be addressed. At least it used to be like that. In this day and age, there's no logic anymore. There's no independent thought. Uh, Consequences are gone accountabilities are gone, people are confused, dumbed down. It's an Orwellian age, black is white, white is black, so I suppose you can get away with everything. But for us who are still free thinkers, it is obvious that as soon as they acknowledge the phenomena, that was their big mistake. I mean, they have, of course, done it kicking and screaming. (laughs) But the cat is out of the bag, and there's no putting it back. No, as long as they didn't do that, anything could be dismissed. Like a classified space program, despite all the substantial evidence for it. Because, no, we're sticking to our story. Nothing's going on here. Nothing to see here. Now, they're saying, yes, it's real. But we don't know what it is. Oh, we're so open about it. But we don't know what it is. I'm not saying they necessarily know everything about it, but certainly they have some information that is not shared. And um, you you can also infer stuff from what it is not. So uh, you can eliminate things. So, of course, there are circles who, who knows more than the average. And if indeed they are even back engineering these things or developing... Look, it's not important if you adhere to the alien source of it. Or if you take the Occam's Razor, which says there's a natural provenance for such a science, we, we don't need help <laughs> from anyone to actually have reached that level. When you look at the history of, of science, especially the suppressed parts of it, or if you think it's based on ancient sources or whatever uh, other... Uh, potential sources there may be for this groundbreaking technology. I'm saying it doesn't matter because no matter what, which um, option, they do have it. They are working on it according to leaks, uh, according to these hearings, and of course according to (laughs) so much history, like Reagan's admission, like McKinnock, the hacker, etc., etc., Check out our show with uh, Michael Schratt, for example. I mean, these uh, private uh, contractors, the military-industrial complex, are certainly launching one exotic vehicle after another. Of course, the goodies are never... You know, it's like uh, what they are launching is like yesterday's news or maybe decades-old technology at any given time. Never 
it's not in the nature of the military or the national security state to come out with what they got. So when they do roll out something, it's like scraps, crumbs for the masses. But back to my point, now that they have acknowledged it, there's such a small step to the unavoidable conclusions. It's not even, it's not a leap anymore, if it ever was. Because it's in a nature to want superiority and aerial superiority and superiority in space is prioritized. That is the ultimate duty in their book. So, if they acknowledge that there are something that can surpass what is in the white, obviously, obviously, they uh, this is a priority. Obviously, they would want to imitate it or, 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 or get to that level themselves. Now, it's even better than that. They admit that there has been, I mean, thanks to Ralph, it's been exposed, right? That, yes, we have a program. We've invested millions in it. And here's the crucial thing. I thought they could get away with not It's nothing. Now, it's there. It exists. Now, we're just negotiating the scale of it, right? So let's use logic. You think they would invest millions in it? They spend billions on bullshit? <laughs> I mean, go through what the America state is, is spending money on. They're spending more money on cultural stuff than this. Of course, that is just a scrap. Look, either it's a decoy, either it's like a, a facade, or it's a, just a small part of it that has been exposed. Of course, as soon as they acknowledge it's real, then everybody understands that billions, probably trillions, has been invested in this. Because this is the ultimate priority. This is power. This is the nature of the game. This is the soul of the beast. This is what they're doing. This is what they exist for. It's the most important thing in the world to them. Of course, trillions have been invested in this. They should have just denied it. They should have never been exposed that they were interested in this, that they had covert programs exploring this. You heard in the intro, they even have launched new ones now, admitted from the spokesperson of the president. They should just have kept the denial. No, it doesn't exist. Therefore, you cannot infer that we are spending all your money on it. And then it becomes interesting to see, you know, 8 trillion has been used in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And 900,000 deaths is also on the books, on the ledger. We know war is a racket. We know it's an excuse to launder money, to whitewash money. You know, for 8 trillion, you can rework the entire world. Look, Afghanistan is a goddamn um, war zone. Iraq, nothing left there either. It's a, it's a cesspool. Where did those trillion go? And you can go through every 9-11. There's so many black holes where money has disappeared. But it's not going into the pocket of some rich people. In the fiat economy, you don't need 8 trillion. To really be rich, you need a certain amount, as much as you can't spend. Now, what are you using the rest for? One single person can't even spend a trillion. And uh, the, the oligarchs, well, they have billions. 
and they're not even spending most of that they're investing in power. So trillions of dollars. Remember, Catherine Fitzek has exposed that the black economy is bigger than the white. And I think the latest figure officially, you know, that he, she revealed with um, Dr. Skidmore is 25 trillion. But last time I spoke with her, I think we agreed it was up to 50 trillion. Just for the missing Pentagon money, part of the vanished money, not even the black budget. And, uh, you know, this work alone has directly led to the audits of Pentagon. Of course, <laughs> they fail all the time and there's no consequences, but at least it's, it's a record. So it's, I, I challenge you to, you to come up with any other hypothesis of what 50 trillion, 100 trillion, who knows how much, you know, all the weapon traffic, drug traffic, human trafficking, the new prosperous, uh, I mean, they, they'll not stop until absolutely every aspect of the world is exploited for profit. Water being sold as commodity, it's just a matter of time before air itself is, is it. If they could put your soul into a juicer, they would. But what do they need all that this money from? All they need is to control the fiat money. And with CBCD, it's like a cakewalk. It's child's play. It's just numbers in the computer. That means they're on top of the economy. They can just extract whatever they want at any given time. It's like a top layer on the real economy that is the work we are producing. This is one of the reasons we have shows about economy to understand what makes the world, the material world, tick. But this, this is work, this is production, this is resources extracted from the populace, disappearing into a black hole. So I challenge you, if you do not accept that there is a classified space program, which would be this expensive, especially when it's black, it would be a completely uh, other story if it was integrated into the white open world. It would probably help make the world prosperous. But I challenge you to come up with any other potential reason or, or, or usage for these enormous, unfathomable amounts of money. There can be no, nothing else. So, so this has been, but then you have the mysterious, real mysterious, if not metaphysical aspect of the UFOs. Now, are there creatures? First of all, I, I also tend to think they are humans or humanoids, those who are in spaceship, but there could be dimensional stuff here. Check my program with David Sirida, we go a little into that, you know, organics or plasma creatures. I'll not dismiss even the old school coming from another planet kind of view, but again, I tend to think that would be humanoid. So what do we make of the abductions? Again, I've discussed this with others, like uh, Alex Sakiris, we've discussed it a little. Uh, I've discussed it a little with um, Serida. I believe it was also mentioned with uh, Lavenda. But there, there can be no doubt that there are experiencers, and they are experiencing something. Now, let's say for the sake of argument that is physical, I have no doubt it would be us. <laughs> it would be our own. But yeah, of course, it could be humans, not of this earth, maybe even creatures. But I tend to think if it's creatures, it would be more interesting for them if they were not just non-terrestrial, but non, uh, 
I was about to say non-dimensional, but n- not of our dimension. That would make it interesting to poke into these weird meat bags that we are. So uh, I'll, I'll not uh, muse much around this because there's too many unknowns. There's too much potentiality of explanations. And uh, I think we're at the level where we need to ask the right questions before we start. We can make answers for the missing trillions and uh, the nuts and bolts uh, machines, mystic machines floating about. But when it comes to these more exotic aspects, remember consciousness is always involved. So what if the real unknown aspects of UFOs or indeed UAPs which there's a hybrid out there now. Now they started to call it unidentified aerial phenomena. Well, when the term was launched in the 50s, it was unknown aerial phenomena. Maybe it's just semantics. It, it means the same thing. Uh, but it's a hybrid nevertheless, because the original term UFO, which they launched in the 40s, I say they, I mean the military created both terms was indeed unidentified. Flying, object flying doesn't cover all because they are in space and they're even underwater. Same with aerial. Aerial isn't really a perfect term either because you have USOs, isn't that what they call it now? But anyway, so my point is consciousness, consciousness, consciousness. So what if the unknown aspect of these phenomena are spiritual? or metaphysical? So they are the cause to the material or at least they know enough about that maybe contact, maybe pilots and all this stuff, but then there's the mystical aspect of it that they can't control. Religious people would leap to stuff like angels, of course. Chuck Valer talked about the natural control system. If indeed the esoteric traditions are right, we are but the end stage or a low level in, in Jacob's ladder, in a vibration, in a, in a keyboard of vibrations, which means that there would be higher causations out there, higher dimensions, if you like. And um, in this godless day and age, of course, we will look upon it as threats or uh, and as, as mysteries that shouldn't be acknowledged and needs to be suppressed and let us not relate to it and by all means do not let the consumers learn about it because they need to be kept as rats in the maze in the materialistic maze okay i'll spare you more of my pontifications again thanks to my guest ralph blumenthal thanks to my team for all their hard work and thanks to you for supporting us and listening. Hence, I've been your host, Al, giving the last word to Dr. Jack Barlet. Human beings are under the control of a strange force that bends them in absurd ways, forcing them to play a role in a bizarre game of deception. Be seeing you.
who is number one.